0: We just thank you for this day we thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to look at your word we ask you to guide and lead us in your son's precious name amen psalm 149 praise you the lord sing unto the lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of saints let israel rejoice in him that made him let the children of zion be joyful in their king Let them praise his name and dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing loud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgments written, this honor have all his saints. Praise you the Lord. All right, so again, we're still in the Hallel Psalms, which each one of these Psalms start with the term hallelujah. Praise you the Lord. Hallel, praise, bring glory, shine forth. Yah, the shortened version of Yahweh, so hallelujah, praise you the Lord. That's what the section we're in on these, uh, these psalms, and they all end with, begin and end with, in Hebrew, hallelujah, praise you the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song. We look at this, and God wants us, I really think God is looking for praise from his people, That was what we were talking about this morning. God wants us to enjoy him with praise. Uh, Whether whether you want to say it's a need or not, God doesn't have any needs, he's complete, but he seems to want us to praise and to praise him, which fulfills us, because we were created to praise God. And this is something we have to get into our heads is without God, we are empty. We are empty without God. Pascal said there's a God-shaped vacuum in all people that only God can fill. And when we praise God, it brings out that joy in us that we don't usually have otherwise. And we look at him, the song we sang, the more that I praise him, the more that I love him, the more love he bestows, the more that I praise him, the more that that, that I get that praise, and it's wonderful that God has given that to us. And when we give it back to him, he pours it back on us. And this is the great thing about loving God. The more love we give back to God, the more love he pours back on us, the more love we get to pour out to others and upon him, and the more he gives back. God has a great blessing on those that honor him and to just lift him up. And here it says, Sing unto the Lord a new song not somebody else's song not some repeated song your song between you and God and oftentimes for those of us who are not into songwriting that's a hard thing to do but you know our song doesn't have to be a literal song it could be God you've blessed me this way and I'm gonna lift you up and I'm gonna honor you in whatever I can do (laughs) David it was all about singing David was a musician he was also a warrior in and in, in all of this, but he was a musician. And it's funny because you hear these songs, and musicians have their own language, they have their own attitude. But you know, God wants us to worship Him with what He has given us to worship Him. For me, it's not going to be by writing songs. For me, it's going to be honor and teaching and instructing others and watching how God uses that. For some people, it might just be the way they're going to sing a new song for God is by their service that they do for people or for the church or whatever. God has given us something new, fresh. He says his mercies are new every morning, which means don't live on past experience, okay? Too many people live on past experience. Too many churches live on past experience. Well, once, 20 years ago, we did this really great revival service and a 1,000 people got saved. What have you done lately? Well, you know, once 20 years ago, we had a really great... Yeah, but what has God done in the church lately? Well, you know, 20 years ago, they're living in the past, and we do that frequently as human beings. God, you did this for me two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, a decade ago. And God's saying, I've got so much more for you. Live in where I am doing now. Because we can get so wrapped up in the past that we forget to live in the moment that God has given us now. And that can be good and bad. We can be paralyzed because we're waiting for God to do the great work. God, I was part of this great big revival and you did this really great thing. I saw so many people getting saved. God, I'm waiting for you to do just the same thing over again. And God says, I don't do the same thing over again. I give you new mercies, new uh, activities. Sing a new song unto the Lord and his praise in the congregation of saints. And I love this word for praise. It is to give him his adoration, to give him a uh, exalt and rejoice in him. I loved when people talk about what God is doing in their life, because that is exalting God in his congregation, the assembly of his people. You know, and a lot of people will look at them and say, well, uh, it's, what's the big deal? God did something nice. It's a great big deal that God does anything for anybody. And we need to be able to give, this, give our testimony. How did you end up getting saved? i love to have people tell me how they got saved. Tell me about it. How, what was it that what you brought into getting saved? You know, I love to tell people my testimony. You know, from the time as far back as I can remember, I've been going to church when nobody else in my family went to church. I got saved when I was 10 years old. I was on a church bus going to church. and We had junior church back in the days when junior church was church. Okay, we had our own songs, we had our own offering. It was a church and it was an evangelistic message and all of a sudden I heard the gospel message and went forward and accepted Jesus Christ as my savior. Went home and did what you're supposed to do. Tell somebody. <laughs> who did I tell? My dad, who wasn't saved. He'd been looking for God, and it was kind of funny on his part because he did not know how to deal with this. His son just says he became a Christian. So he asked me to the best of his ability, did I know what I had done? Because the only thing he knew about Christianity was that if he did it, it was, it was a change of life. And he understood that as best as i had understood it at 10 years old, i had understood that it was a change of life. But you know, we get this idea, who do we tell? Who do we tell when we're saved? Who do we tell? Who do we share about our testimony? So many people don't share it. My encouragement to everybody, and even on here, even though we don't have an altar call for people to come forward because everybody in the church says they're saved, it's if you get saved, tell somebody. Preferably a Christian who's going to encourage you in it. Because I don't don't want you to be discouraged by telling the wrong person, ah, you'll get over it. You'll get over it someday. My dad at least was wise enough to know that if I made a decision for God, it was a decision that needed to be real. And he was not going to discourage it. Like I said, he was looking for God. He was looking for God in all the wrong places at that particular point in his life. But he was looking for God. And I told him, you know, hey, Dad, I got saved. I became a Christian today. Yeah. I told many people in my, in, in around me that I got saved. I don't, you know, how do you get saved? I go, come and tell. The, 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 they'll tell you in the, the, the junior church how to do it. Come on. <laughs> I didn't know a lot about what I had done. I just knew that I had admitted that I was a sinner and I needed God, and he came into my life. And, you know, praise him in the congregation. Sing a song of God that's new. Not, not living on the past. And this is what I say so often. What is God doing in your life? Are you recognizing what he's doing in your life? Or are you still back in, you know, I got saved 40 years ago and it's the best time of my life. I sure hope God's doing something in 40 years in your life that's better than, or at least equal to your salvation. Probably not better. There's nothing greater you're going to heaven. But he should be doing something in your life that's worthy of praising him and saying, wow, God, you've done this. You let me share the gospel and this person got saved. That's great, God. God, I prayed and you answered this prayer. God, I was reading your word and wow, what what wonderful things you have in your word. We need to be able to do these with people, share with them, understand and and encourage. And if we can't do it in the congregation, we're not going to do it anywhere else. If we can't tell the people that we spend time with Christ with what God is doing in our life, we're not going to tell anybody else. And I love telling people about Jesus. I loved it. I, I've shared with you, when I was, especially when I was working as a manager of the restaurant, I used to tell people what God was doing in my life all the time. And you could almost see in their eyes, oh, he's going, tell, he's going to tell us more about God. I didn't tell them they had to come to church. I didn't tell them they had to go south. I just told them all about what God was doing in my life. And oftentimes they would come to me and go, tell me more about this God. Why? Because I was excited about him. We talk about what we're excited about. And you can, it doesn't take you long, whoever you're with, you'll find out what are they excited about. Some hobby, some activity, their job. There's some people you talk to and you're not gonna hear anything else but their job. You're not gonna hear anything else but their hobby, their sports, whatever it might be. You don't need to talk with them very long before you realize what is most important to that person. Do we talk about God enough to say, God, you are what's most important in my life? Sing his praises. Sing a new song. And it says in the congregation. Verse 2. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let Israel rejoice. Exalt. Exalt. Do we exalt in God? And that means to lift him up. To honor him and lift him up. It is wonderful when you talk to somebody and they go, I've been talking to people about Jesus. I love hearing that from people. I really do. I love it when Annie talks about talking to these people on the street and on the phone and you know, uh, when Mark will tell me about how many tracks he's given out to the, to the people in the waiting rooms and everything. And, you know, ultimately, I'd like to hear, see, find that somebody got saved, but we're planting seeds. We're planting seeds and, and lifting Jesus up, lifting him up. It says, Let Zion, let the children of Zion be joyful or be glad in their king. Zion, God's people, Jerusalem, in their king. Ultimately, this is David speaking and he's not talking about himself, he's talking about the king. Let them be exulting and praising their king, be glad in their king. Something that bothers me so often is when people do not seem to be glad in their salvation, the joy of the Lord, the joy of their salvation. God wants us to be joyful in him. Our circumstances may not be worth being joyful about. What's going on in our life may not be joyful about, but he's saying, be joyful. When I was growing up, we used to sing, the joy of the Lord is my strength, you know. And, you know, are we really looking at the joy of God being our strength? He is saying, be joyful. And his favorite story, Betsy in the concentrations camp saying, we got to praise God for these fleas and lice because look at what's happening. She had deep down joy that God was her strength. Okay? Too many Christians do not have the joy of the Lord as their strength. The, I, for many Christians, I think grumbling is their strength. They grumble about everything. Grumble about how bad things are in their life, how things are going wrong, that there's no joy in their life, and all they do is end up talking about how bad things are. Sometimes. But you know, God is saying, be joyful. Be joyful in him. Just the idea of waking up every morning should be joyful. God, I get to serve you for another day. I get to do something for you for another day. Do you realize how great a blessing that is that every day we live, we get to serve God? Not, I must serve God. No, he's going to cause me problems. Not, I, I have to do all these things. But I get to serve God. I get to share the gospel with one more person that may or may not get saved, but I'm get, I get to give the gospel out to them. I get to be able to share what God has done in life. That should make us so excited that God gives us that blessing. I talk about it you know we get to go to God in prayer do you realize how great a blessing that is the Jews did not have this idea of just praying to God all the time some of them did but the idea was that if you weren't in the tabernacle you weren't in the temple your prayers weren't as strong because that's where God was he was in the temple False religions all have this mentality that you've got to be in the right place, the right thing, the right way to do it to be able to have God maybe possibly hear you. We get to talk to God and he listens to us. He doesn't always give us everything we want, but he listens to us. We get to climb up in his lap and, and talk to him because of how much he loves us. Be joyful in their king. Be glad in God. So many Christians have this idea, and I've been, I've been to some, certain churches where, and I've said this before, that if, it looks like if they were to smile, that, they would, that something would break on their face because they have no joy because they have this idea. I'm in God's presence. No smiling. God doesn't want happy people. God wants us to be miserable, and there's lots of people out there that think that God seems to want miserable people. If I try to do anything for God, he's just looking at for me to make a mistake so he can crush me. I feel sorry for those people that have that picture of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed on, believes on him should have everlasting life, not perish, but have everlasting life. God wants us to have joy in him. This verse, have joy, be glad in their king. And if you're afraid of God because you're afraid that he's looking to punish you, you're never going to be glad. You're not going to have any excitement. And the sad thing is there are so many people in this world that have had bad relationships with their families, bad relations with their, with their father or mother, that all they see is God is somebody big meaning up there ready to beat me over the head with a stick. And God says, I love you. I want to bless you. I want to give you great things. And we're going, sorry, God. All I know is that, you know, people in my life want to beat me up so God you must be just like them this is why Satan is working so hard to destroy families if he can destroy the relationship between a husband and wife and Jesus says this is the church is my bride and all we know is destroyed wasted families in our day and age most young people do not want to get married because they look around them their mother and father is divorced, and everybody they know has a divorced family member. They don't have never seen a successful marriage. Very few people have seen a, any kind of successful marriage, and they do no desire to get married because why do I want that? You know, everyone I know has a has a broken marriage. We'll just live together. We'll do whatever we want, but we're not going to get married because marriage has failed. Satan has done a wonderful job destroying marriage. The sad thing is that he's, he's, he's made it bigger than it even, the problem bigger than it even ever was, but it's, it's there. He's destroying the relationship of a father with their children to, to both extremes. Either the father has abandoned the mother and the family completely and they go, well, I don't need a father, they just, they just leave. Or he's abusive, physically and or sexually. And they go, I don't want a father all he did was beat me and hurt me Satan has done a strong job on destroying family we need to rejoice in God lift him up show the world that God has a plan Christians should be staying together in marriage they should be staying together in families they should be loving their kids and raising their kids and for the most part many Christians do a better job than the world but there's still a number of Christians that aren't doing that, that aspect of it either. And our kids are looking and saying, why? Why should I get married? Why should I get married? Everybody I know has got a divorce. And people just aren't willing to follow God. Jesus told the Pharisees when they go, why did Moses command that we could write? And he goes, because of the hardness of your heart. You would not forgive for adultery, so God made a provision for your lack of forgiveness that you could get divorced, but it was not what he intended. And you know, we have people getting divorced for all the wrong reasons. I just don't like this person. Well, join the crowd. (laughs) Every relationship, at some point, you're not going to like that person. They're going to get under your skin. They're going to irritate you. Well, God, I just can't do this because God doesn't want our excuses. He wants our obedience. And he wants true obedience. You know, Saul, after the battle with the Amalekites, came back with the animals, and Samuel goes, What did you do this for? He goes, Well, the people, and Saul blamed it on the people, the people wanted to keep the best, and, you know, and I really thought we'll just take them to the temple and sacrifice them. And Samuel's answer was, God wants obedience more than sacrifice. He's not looking for what we'll give up, he's looking for the obedience the best we can. Are we going to be perfectly obedient? Absolutely not. We're not going to be perfectly obedient, but God is saying, that's what I want. I want obedience. I want you to do what, you, what, what I've asked you to do. We talked about it this morning. What's the first prerequisite of prayer is that we keep his commandments. If you want an answer for prayer and you're not keeping his commandments, forget about it. He's going, you're not listening to me. Why would I, why would I give you anything? We humble ourselves, and we ask him, and it may be, God, help me be obedient. <laughs> you know, and God says, okay, I can help you with that. Yep. I'll help you with that. He'll put us in situations that we don't want to be in to be, learn obedience, but he'll help us learn obedience. And he'll give us the strength to be obedient if we will totally humble ourselves. But then he's going to put us in a position to say, are you obedient? I've now given you the strength. I've shown you how to do it. Are you going to be obedient? And he puts us in places to test that obedience. Over and over again, God tests us by putting us in the place to say, have you learned this lesson? Obedience, love, forgiveness, patience, whatever it might be, have you learned your your lesson? And he puts us in tests that will determine, did you learn? And unfortunately, so many of us, myself included, failed the test four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, dozen times, before we finally pass it. The key is, God, help me. God, I want to serve you. And it's all God's strength. When we finally surrender to God, God will put us in that test and we go, God, I've given this to you, it's yours. He says, thank you. Then he gives us a new test (laughs) to make us learn to surrender. That's where we spend our entire lifetime with God, learning to be sanctified. God says, I want you to learn this. Okay, God, I think I've got it. Okay, here's your test to see if you've got it. Uh, Sorry, child, you didn't have it. Here we go, learn it a little better. We're gonna put you back in the test again. Uh, Well, closer this time. But you know, isn't this the way we learn? How many people jumped on a bike, When the very first time you jumped on a bike, you rode that bike around the block and up and down the hills and jumped off ramps or whatever, on the very first time you jumped on the bike? I don't know of anybody who's done that. Uh, most people, mom or dad put them on the bike, they walked around behind them for a long time, don't let go, don't let go, don't let go. know, you let go and you fall down. You let go, you hurt me. We get back on the bike. Don't let go, don't let go. And they, we let go and they go a little further. Well, after several days, weeks, years, whatever it might take. That kid is getting jumping, just running out. They're not, they're not going on to dad and mom. Uh, I'm running for a bike ride. I need you to hold, hold it up for me while I get going. They get on the bike and they have now passed that test. They can ride the bike. Okay? We teach our kids to walk and sometimes we regret teaching them to walk because they get into everything they're after. But you know, we teach our kids to walk. And they fall down. And I don't know a good parent anywhere that looks at their kid, what'd you fall down for? You're supposed to be walking. I know you're only six months old, but get up there and get walking. That's not the way we we treat our children, and it's not the way God treats us. He knows that we're going to fall flat on our faces. We're learning. Now the problem is if we're still learning 30 years later, God may start saying, "Okay, it's about time that you've learned this lesson." Would we please? Can we please move? Okay, I I put you up on your hands and knees. Can we please get to the walking stage? Uh, you know. Can you please start running? Can you please start getting out and doing something more than just crawling around on your belly? Can you please start feeding yourself? I'm tired of giving you these bottles. You're 50 years old and we're still feeding you watered down milk. And God's saying, let's let's move. But you know there's many Christians that are still in that infancy. They'll tell you they've been a Christian for 30, 40, 50 years. And they're still crawling around on their bill. some of them may not even be crawling. They're rolling around. They have to be carried everywhere they go. They have to be bottle-fed. Everything that they're being fed. Praise God. Learn to go after Him. Learn to grow and walk. And I've said this many times. If anybody had a baby, you know, a, a child that's 50 years old still sleeping in a crib because they couldn't, you know, and being carried everywhere they went, being fed a bottle, we would all say something's wrong. You've abused this child pretty badly for this to be the case. And yet there are Christians in that, in that same exact place that have to be carried everywhere they want spiritually, have to be bottle-fed everything that they're, they're looking, can't make a godly decision for, for anything because they just refuse to grow. And this is a sad place. None of us are where we're supposed to be, no matter how long we've walked with God. None of us are where we probably should be. But we need to be growing. And here he says, Rejoice in him. Verse 3, Let them praise his name in dance, and let them sing praise unto him with a timbre and harp. David really pictures this exciting thing, to be dancing before the Lord. Okay. And sometimes I think some churches take this a little too far, but, you know, there's joy. It says that David danced before the Lord, As they brought the ark into Jerusalem, dancing. And it says, Michael, his wife, criticized him. You know, what a wonderful sight. The king dancing around in almost his underwear, I mean, in in a tunic, you know. He took off the royal garments and he's just praising God, enjoying God. You know yeah just like a common man you're, you're you're just you're just a nobody and before God he wasn't in anybody and he knew that, he that and how often do other older Christians shut down the new Christian because of their joy you know well you know when you get when you grow up a little bit in God you'll know that these things aren't so special you know to worship God and we talked about that this morning to worship God to raise our hands and worship maybe get up and, and just jump up and down. I mean, we'll jump up and down in sports events. We'll scream and holler in sports events. We go to a to a wonderful show or a play, they'll jump and, get up and give a standing applause and jump up and down and be excited. We can't do that when we worship God. We gotta be so careful. You know, Christians, when they're brand new Christians, they're telling everybody about Jesus and they have exuberance and And the older Christians, yeah, one day you'll grow up and you won't be quite as excited about God. I sure hope that no Christian ever grows up to not be excited about God. If that's the case, I don't want to grow up. Let me be a child for the rest of my life. If growing up means I stop getting excited about God, no way. I want to be excited about God. I want to know that he is the Lord and Master and Savior and be excited that I get a day that I get to serve him because it is another day. And it is a day to serve him. Because if I didn't have something to serve him, he'd have me at home. I'd be in heaven. If he didn't have something for me to do to serve him in this day, and this on the hour that I'm at, then I might as well just be at home and that's where he'd have me. We need to have this excitement. Dancing before the God, playing the, the tambourine and the harp. Excitement. Okay. And yet we look at how most people worship God. Well, I might sing this song. I might you might enjoy it, but don't don't bring in all these instruments. I've had people get mad when a church brings in instruments. You know, tambourines, drums, guitars, uh, trumpets. Uh, you know, if we had the people to play and we had a large enough church, I'd have all that stuff in here. As long as it's played with respect and honor, I don't care. You know, the scriptures and Psalms, David says, praise him with the loud cymbals, the large clanging, loud clanging cymbals. He wanted people praising God. Be excited because he understood the need of that activity. You know, we want to see this. We see the shows sometimes where they're they're dancing in the aisles of the churches. And as long as it's done decently in order, I really have no problem with it. Let's see people get excited about God. Let's them sing and be excited. Verse 4, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. I love this. The Lord takes pleasure in us. If we could understand that God has pleasure. He is the Father. The Father loves to see his children grow and do good things. And this word for pleasure is he takes favor he makes acceptable He's satisfied how many times do we look at God and say God you're not satisfied with me you're not happy with me I can almost picture God in heaven saying if you only understood how much I enjoy seeing what you've done sure you're only taking baby steps but how many parents get excited their 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 child took two steps you know get around somebody with a new baby and you're gonna hear these yeah the baby's rolling Oh, big deal, the baby's roll. What we well, yeah, but he just started it. He flipped from his belly to his back, and now from his back to his belly. And you know, and we get excited about it. And you know, like, Yeah, right. The baby's up on his knees. Uh huh. Okay, all babies do that. Yeah, but you gotta see this. It's growth. God does the same thing with us. I can almost picture him in heaven. You know, hey, Jesus, uh, that's one of our kids down there. They're up on their knees walking back and forth. They're getting ready to move. Okay. Oh, oh man, uh, but Jesus, he did take two steps. Where Jesus telling the father, yeah, that's our, that's our kid. That's, that's, that's your adopted kid. He took two steps. All right, very good. Okay, father, And he's walking around the table now. Uh, father, that, one, that one's on his bike. You know, can you picture God taking that kind of pleasure? This is what it tells us. He's satisfied, we're acceptable in his sight. Most of us look at all our failures and say, man, God, you just are so disappointed in me. How could you even want to be anywhere near me with all my failures and God's saying, I'm not looking at the failures. I'm not looking at the fact that you fell down 28 times before you learned to walk, 100 times before you learned to walk. I'm looking at the fact you learned to walk. What would a parent be like, all right, let's see. All right, day one, fell down fell down, fell down, fell down, uh, almost, fell down. About time you finally learned to walk. You only fell down 300 times. That's not God looking at us. He's saying, all right, all right, you're standing. All right, oh, you're down, okay, but you, you stood. Okay, you're, you're walking with the support of that table. All right, all right. He's not saying, okay, you keep falling. Ah, yeah, you're never going to be worth anything. But that's how most Christians look at ourselves. We keep falling and we go, God looks at us in our failure, not our success. We need to go back to the way we look at our children and say, Ah, yes, they walked. They're walking. Like I said, sometimes we wish we hadn't told them to walk or, or ride bikes or you know whatever it might be or talk. You know. Um, but you know, we get excited when they do. And I picture God the same way. He takes pleasure in his children. All right, they said three words. And you know what, they just witnessed to that person. They got five words right out of that whole, uh, whole time of witnessing. But you know what, they're learning. And then he goes, wow, that is my child. Look at my child now witnessing to everybody that they come across, and they're doing a good job at it. But he's not criticizing them as they're learning. He's not criticizing us as we're learning to walk, as we're learning to feed ourselves, as we're learning to to share the gospel. He's saying, that's my child. They're growing. And one day, they're going to have that message down pat. One day, they're going to have that walk in that part of their life down pat. And he's taking pleasure in us. Oh, that we can start understanding that God takes pleasure in us. That he is greatly pleased when we make progress. Well, he might not make it as fast as he wants, to, you know, would love it to be, but he's going to take pleasure. Just as that parent is taking pleasure in their kid. And if you've been around newborn parents or grandparents of newborns, you hear it all the time. You know, let me tell you about every milestone of my kid for the first three years. <laughs> might not talk to you about him for the, the rest of his life, but man, look at what he's doing. He is growing. I can picture God, you know, maybe even to the angels. Hey, you know, look at that, look, look at that one. They just learned, they just took three steps. And the angels are probably going, yeah, right, who cares? <laughs> and God's going, yeah, but that's my child. I think the angels can. They might, I don't know. I, I don't know whether they care or not, but you know, I picture this. How many times do grandparents and parents talk about their kids and you could just look at the glazed look on people's face? All right, another another milestone for your grandkid. Okay, oh, wow. they're just a kid. You know. But you know, we take pleasure in that, those steps. We take pleasure. you know. My son just did whatever it might be. There's a guy, the guy at the work. His son is up for a scholarship at a college for his, his pitching. He's always talking about his kid and how good his son is at pitching. I don't know how good his son is. He's got good enough to get a scholarship, so that's got to be something. Yeah. But, you know, do we look at ourselves and say, God is taking pleasure in what I'm accomplishing? Do we look at other Christians and say, God really takes pleasure in that person? Or we looking at them and, well, you know what, God, you've been working with that person for five years. How come they're not like me? (laughs) You know, and if we only knew what God sees on us, if he really wanted to look at us that way, we wouldn't be saying that. But, you know, God is saying, this is my child. They're going to grow. They're going to grow the way I want them to grow, and I'm going to take pleasure in every step of their growth. And we need to be able to understand that and take pleasure in his children as well, take pleasure in ourselves and not look at being critical of who I am or what I haven't accomplished. You know, I read a book about some great Christian who's done great things and go, God, I'll never do that. And God says, I didn't ask you to do those. I've asked you to do something totally different. You do good at what I am asking you to do. Don't, you're not a George Mueller or a or, uh, Corey Ten Boom or Johnny Erickson Tata or whoever you might want to put in that category. He says, I made you to be you take pleasure in being you and the growth that we've accomplished. And you know what? We don't all want to be the same anyway. I often wonder could I work with myself? My answer is no. I could not work with myself. I'd be in my way all the time. (laughs) I would. Because all, if I had two or three of me, we'd all be trying to do the same thing at the same time because we all saw the same problem. You know, we need different people that see things differently and will react differently to things and we'll see things that maybe we don't see. When I was in the restaurant business as a manager, I needed people that had cared about the decorations for the holidays that people wanted to see when they came into the store, because I didn't care. Okay, if I never had a holiday decoration, it wasn't gonna hurt my feelings at all. But if you didn't put up Christmas decorations at Christmas times, everybody walking into your store thinks you're a Scrooge and don't care about Christmas, which I didn't, (laughs) other than the fact that we celebrated Jesus' birth. know we need that different aspect of who cares about what even in the church because everybody's gonna see something totally different and say that's what needs to be done that needs to be fixed that needs to be taken care of because it's important we don't all grow together Paul said it you know is everybody in the church a hand no because then you wouldn't be any walking as everybody and I know, because you'd have great seeing, but nothing would ever get done. You'd see all the problems, but nobody would do anything. We need people, and we can't be looking at each other and saying, well, I'm more important than you because I see the problems, and you, all you do is help them. And the helper can't go, well, you know, I'm the one that's actually doing the work. All you did was see the problem. Well, neither one of you could work without the other. We need everybody in the body. God is grateful for each one of us and he's gonna grow us at the rate he wants us grown at. And he takes pleasure in that. And then he says he will beautify the meek with salvation. Bring glory. He brings, that word for beauty is to adorn. Do you realize that God is adorning us? First he adorns us with salvation. And we've talked about this. There's three parts to salvation. There's the very beginning where he says, he just justifies us. He says, you are perfect. Do you remember? Do you understand what a great adornment that is? God declares you perfect and he sees you as perfect the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He clothes us in Christ's perfection. We're going to spend our entire life trying to become who he says we are being sanctified and that's all those tests that we talked about where he keeps putting us in the test and we fail and if we're not careful we can get miserably discouraged at how many times we fail but you know when you finally get it right that's where the blessing comes in God says good job you got it right and we can take pleasure in that and I know people who go well don't give me any don't give me any pleasure don't give me any praise God does God gives us praise; He gives us glory. Don't ever think that saying no to all the, the glory is a good thing. Because if you are grown someplace and you refuse to acknowledge that God has grown you in that area, that is not being humble. That is being falsely humble. God does not want us to deny what we're doing. He just doesn't want us to take greater joy and pleasure in it than what he gives. Okay? Don't exalt yourself beyond what it what it is that you've given Paul understood that he was a great teacher Paul understood that he was a teacher of pastors Paul understood that he was a church planter he also understood probably whatever it was he didn't have he didn't have a lot some skills and he understood those we need to take pleasure in what we are with God not try to do things that we aren't but that doesn't mean don't try to do anything it just means God I tried this you know I've heard so many pastors say how do you find out what you're good at and what you're gifted at Go try stuff. It won't take you long to do certain things and say, this isn't for me. If I was asked to be part of a construction team on a church, I'm going to go, you don't want me in there because I've already learned I can't nail two boards together and let them and have them stay still. I can measure this board 28 times and I'm still not going to cut it right. But if you want somebody to teach people the word of God, I'm your man. If you want me to work with your kids, I can do that. But don't ask me to do certain things. Okay, I'm good at tearing down things. I used to love going to the church and breaking down the walls and stuff as they were going to expand the buildings. That was fun. Put them back together was not my, was not my forte. Learn what it is and sometimes the way we learn what we're good at is to find out, uh, well, God, you know, I tried to teach the kids and they drove me nuts. I was ready to hang every one of them on the hook on the wall where they, where they put their coats and that made, okay, don't be with the kids much longer. Okay. If you're ready to hang them up on the hooks, that is not your calling. God, I, I went in and I went into the kitchen and I burnt all the food. maybe the kitchen isn't your calling. But you know what, God, I was out there in the I was out there in the grass and I can mow the grass and I can trim the and I can trim the, the sidewalk the grass off the sidewalk and I can I can clean the sidewalk really good and I can I can run the water lines and, and create the water lines and God says That's your job then. What is it that God has called us to do? We won't know until we do it. But we also need to be willing to stretch beyond what we think we can do. Maybe God someday will gift me with the, the gift of construction. I doubt it, but maybe every once in a while I'll try to nail two boards together and it doesn't, they don't stay together, so I don't do it very long. It I don't think he's going to give me the gift of being a construction worker. <laughs> uh, I can clean up a construction site. I can carry the lumber for them, but I'm not the one that you want to saw and put it together. But God tells us, Look at what I'm going to do in your life. And He gives us beauty. He adorns us. He adorns us with His love, His garment. He gives us our sorrow and He takes our sorrow away and He gives us the garment of praise. He gives us the covering of joy. He says, I have got things for you that are beyond your imagination. And I wonder what some of this stuff looks like that God's given us that we put so little from the spiritual side of things. When we just don't enjoy the joy of the Lord, what does that look like in heaven when he gives us the joy of the Lord? What does it look like when he gives us excitement and joy, even in our hard times, and all we can concentrate is on the hard times, and God's saying, I've given you this gift. How many gifts from God do we reject? Because he's holding out a gift. Even if we've accepted the gift of salvation, there's other gifts he's holding out to us and saying, I've got these gifts for you. And too often we reject his gifts. And God joys in us. It says in the scriptures, he joys over us with singing as well. I can, I can say, I can picture God and Jesus up in heaven, just, even if it's just between the two of them. But maybe even to the angels. That's my child down there. Look at that. Uh, and the angel's looking, well, he just fell down, no, but that was my child. He took, he, took a, he took a step. He started trusting. Fell flat on his face, but he started trusting. There's gonna be a day, there's coming the day when he's gonna trust, where she's gonna trust. And man, will that be a lo- will life change for them and others around them when they finally learn to trust. But right now they're learning, they're yeah. learning. God joys over us. He adorns us, adorns the meek with salvation. Verse five, let the saints be joyful in in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the saints, us, those who are his children, be joyful in glory. And this, uh, this, again, joyful, exulting, rejoicing, but in glory, his abundance of splendor do you know God has given us an abundance of splendor because we are his children. The king raises up their children and the princes and the princes have beautiful clothes and everything they might possibly want. Why? Because they're the king's children. Even when they're gonna go play, they give them wonderful, clean, great garments, knowing that they're gonna go out and do things <laughs> that they're probably not gonna be happy with. Then They're gonna mess up those clothes and it goes, they're kids, but they're mine. You're gonna know their mind when they come out in your presence, you're gonna know their mind. Even if they get older dirty, even if they fall flat on their face, they're my children. I'm gonna dress them splendor with splendor. And he says, Where to? where to give God glory? We're to be excited about his glory. And I love this. And sing aloud in their beds. Sing aloud in their beds. When they're reclined, God thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for me. You know, um, many Christians hit that bed and they're going, God, it's been such a miserable day. Everything's been wrong. God says, no, there's been good things. You haven't noticed them, but there's been good things. You took, you took half a step. You crawled halfway across the room today. I know it doesn't seem like you went very far, but you crawled. You rolled over today. You rolled over three times today, by the way. You may, you may not think you're doing all that, God, but God says, you've done something. We need to really start taking that pleasure in the pleasure, things that he takes pleasure. Verse 6, let the, high pra- let the high praises of God be in their mouth. Do we praise God? Yes. Do we? And that's the thing. that We need to be just lifting up God. Let it be in our mouth. You know, and then he goes, and a two-edged sword in their hand. Now, the Bible is described as a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It cuts good and bad. I have seen people who use the Bible as a club and a weapon to hurt people. They will judge you from the Bible. They will beat you over the head with a Bible. I've seen parents, unfortunately, use the Bible as a discipline. All right, you misbehave. I really want you to understand. You're going to write this scripture. You're going to copy this scripture 50 times. And you're, you know, I don't want to see the Bible used that way. But many people do. We use it oftentimes against each other. Well, you know the Bible says this if you really believe the Bible you'd be you'd be acting like this and we club them with the Bible we stab them with the sword to do damage we want to look at the Bible as a as a tool that will cut out the cancer in people's lives but not to harm them not to beat them over the head we're to speak the truth in love but the most important part of that is not the truth but the in love I've heard people and they'll quote this well I'm just telling you the truth and it's in love uh, you don't sound very loving uh, you sound like you're beating me over the head with the purpose of trying to make me do what you want me to do and in love I prayed for this person and I so much love you I want to see you make good decisions because I love you that much the two-edged sword, the scriptures can be very damaging or they can be very healing. Let me help you with what God says. Let me show you what God says. Not so I can stick a dagger in you, twist it around and make you feel hurt because you're not doing this. And I'm, and I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm twisting it around. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to cut out your sin, but I'm really twisting it and daggering it. And, you know, that would be like the, the surgeon coming in and going, okay, we're going to cut you up. Um, don't really know where I'm going, but we're just going to cut your body up until we finally find the, the, the diseased organ. Uh, I don't know anybody that would go to a surgeon like that. All right, let's cut here, let's cut there, let's cut here. Oh, we finally found, oh, well, that's not the right organ. Uh, let's cut you some more. Too many people, they'll use the Bible that way. Let me keep cutting at you until finally we get you some help. Two-edged sword; it can do great damage to people, and it can do great healing to people. Now, if you've been around churches, you've been around Christians long, and if you understand exactly what that means, because people will use it as a club, they will use it as a. Let me just keep cutting. Eventually, eventually, I'll find something that helps you. I'll find I'll find that sin in your life that I'm trying to help you cut out. And, uh, oops! You don't have an arm or a leg or a head anymore, but i got I finally found the cancer in your in your belly. You have you know. I got it. Here, the word, the word got it. You should really be happy. We got to it. Uh, yeah, but I'd like to have my head, my arms, and my legs. Okay. But yet, too many people will come in wildly with God's word and swinging it around and not even being aware of the damage they can do. And, you know, they're trying. I want to give them good marks. Many of them are trying to help as best as they know how and we need to be patient with them. But they can do so much damage in the process of trying to help without learning, especially toward kids, but even toward other adults. Adults have been hurt so bad by the church in many cases because they're wildly swinging around the two-edged sword of the Bible and beating them up because they're not living the way they think they should live. And this is why judgment is something very carefully. The Bible tells us that many things are sin. And we're to judge sin. We're to say it is sin. But that we don't say it in such a way that we drive people away. It is one thing to tell somebody that what you're doing is wrong and it's sin. And love them and be telling them. And we've all hopefully had enough of both ways probably. People beating us over the head with the Bible telling us what we're doing with sin and those who love us enough to share it. And you know the difference. You know it when you see it. When somebody tells you what you're doing is wrong, but they love you and you know and you feel that love, does it soften the blow? Does it soften the cut? Not particularly. Mm -hmm. But you go, this person is trying to help. And I know that. I have had friends in my life that have done this. They come in and go, you know, I really care enough about you and I need to share this with you. And I'm going, okay, go ahead. (laughs) And it can hurt. It doesn't mean that that cut in our, in our spirit is gonna be any less painful. But when it's done in love, it's that surgeon giving that cut that takes out the cancer and the death. It's that surgeon taking out the bad organ in our, in our body that is killing us. And we go, okay, didn't like it, wasn't fun, but it's made me grow. And that's what this two-edged sword of the Bible can be a club, a beating, a, a harmful, harming of people. And again, want to be careful when I say that. It's not normally that they're trying to hurt you. Most people are not out to make you feel bad when you come to church. They're honestly trying to help you. They're just clumsy. And we need to be able to give them grace enough to understand that they're not out there trying to beat us up. Now, too often we'll go, yeah, that person, every time I see them, they're just you know, out to hurt me. And they're doing it on purpose. Oftentimes, we assign motive to things that have no motive. That person is so mean, they're doing it on purpose. No, they're just growing. Yes, there are people out there that are mean on purpose, but you know, they're very few that are there on purpose. They're just clumsy. They're learning. It's a good thing that surgeons get to practice on cadavers before they get to practice on the live people. They're learning how to make the cuts and where to find the things and how to cut through the muscle and do the least damage as possible. And until they can do it right on the cadaver, they're not going to get to do it on a person. Okay? Uh, when they teach them to give shots, they teach them how to do it nowadays on you know, little, little other, other things other than humans. But at some point, they've got to learn on a human. Yeah. You, know, and, you know, getting somebody learning to draw blood who is, and you're their first victim is <laughs> <What? laughs> not a fun thing. Okay? But eventually, they have to. You know, when somebody is sharing the gospel, they may be clumsy at it, and you might be the first one they've talked to, and they may be clumsy. When I taught people how to wait tables, you showed them and showed them and showed them, and at some point you had to let them serve the table. And then eventually you had to let them go out without you watching. <laughs> okay? What what are they gonna do wrong? You know, what are they not gonna do right? God understands it with us as his children. Okay, yes, they're kind of swinging the word of God a little heavily here, but maybe they're going to learn. Hopefully, they're going to learn. Maybe somebody's going to be able to come along to you. you know, You know, you might want to be able to say this like this. You might want to do this with the people. Unfortunately, there's so many Christians that won't do that and won't be discipled. We need to be discipled. We need to take correction from other people and say, this is maybe the way it needs to be done. We as human beings don't like to be told we're doing something wrong. We don't like to be corrected. Because all of us are perfect in our own minds. Uh, may not be perfect anywhere else, but we're perfect in our minds. You do not have to tell me what to do. Even when we do it wrong. You know, well, I did the best I can. I did the best I can, so don't try to tell me how to do it better. I'm going to keep doing it the best I can, and I don't need your help and you know that's a sad place to be because all of us need to be taught when we learn to play sports very few people ever went out on the ball field and and was a perfect first baseman the very first time they ever ever went out to the first base to play first base or second base or shortstop or outfielder catcher or pitcher somebody had to give them instruction and they need instruction to improve the pros have coaches that teach these guys how to do it better than what they're doing And the sad thing is, the coach can't do it as well as the guy who's doing it. But they know the technique. If you do this little change, it's going to improve your shot, your catch, your throw, your block. I can't, and you know, and sometimes they'll get snippy with them. Well, you just get out there and show me that you can do it better. Okay, they're not going to stay pro very long if they're going to get that way, but because they understand that there is a better way. And in practice, um, there's a quote at the prison on a book poster that um, uh, Jordan had said, "You can go out and practice three throws the wrong way eight hours a day every day for a year, and all you do is get good at doing it wrong." Okay, we need people to instruct us, to teach us. We need to be soft enough to say, "I need this," and they may not be better than you at what they're doing. But they understand the principle, they understand what God says. I would not dare to tell people how to be a great evangelist because I am not the greatest evangelist. I go out and do it, I share the gospel, but I've been out with people who know evangelism. I've been out with those who are called as evangelists, truly evangelists. You know, one of the greatest experiences was I went out to lunch with this guy and he must have given the gospel message out a hundred times in the 40 minutes we were in the restaurant. And it wasn't obnoxious. People in line waiting to be seated, they all heard the gospel. The the person seating us heard the gospel. The bus people all around us heard the gospel. The people on either side of us heard the gospel. And he did it so gently, so kindly. If I had given the message that many times, it would have been obnoxious and, and, and not good. But I do give the gospel out to the best of my ability. And I try to study to learn. And i want to learn better how to give the gospel out i know how to do it i know what to say but i'm not really that good at it most of the time but it's not going to stop me from doing it and it's not going to stop me from teaching others to do it but you know we need that we need people that will be able to speak into our life with love and care verse 7 to execute vengeance upon the heathen punishment upon the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron I'm not quite sure where this one goes because I don't think that's our calling, to bind people up. Now, to bind their sin might be one thing. To help them get out of where they're at is one thing. But again, it has to be love. And I don't see a lot of love in the way this is written. But David was a warrior. I mean, he was a musician and he was a warrior. He was a shoot first, ask questions later type guy. Okay. Uh, Now, he did have enough wisdom to usually ask God, should I go shooting? (laughs) You know, should I go into the battle? But once he went, it was, I'm here to win. You know, if you're not here to to fight, you better not be here. And I think this is what we're seeing. When we enter into this, there is a vengeance. When I teach God's word, I have a vengeance against sin. I want people to take sin captive and get rid of it out of their life to execute it. I don't want them to stay where they're at. And there is this whole aspect of how do we deal with sin in our life? Do I try to rope it off? Of, okay, here's your here's your cage. You just stay in that. You stay in this cage, or is it God? I want this sin out of my life. I don't want it. I want it dead. I don't want it anywhere near me. Too many times as human beings, we try to put it in a cage. God, I kind of you know God, I kind of like it. It looks it looks it looks cute. It look, it looks cuddly. So do most bears and lion's cubs and, and stuff. They look pretty cuddly. It's said in Australia that a lot of tourists get mauled by koalas because they think they're cute, cuddly teddy bears to hold and hug and, and stuff. They're wild animals that don't like to be hugged. Now, look at this raccoon. Isn't he wonderful as he rips your hand to shreds as you're trying to pet him? Okay. Sin is a wild animal that needs to be executed. Not, look how cute and cuddly it is, and I just want to keep it around. And many of us do that. My sin, I know, God, I know it's wrong, but you know, God, it's not, it's not really that bad. And God says, if you only knew its true nature and where it will lead you. Most people do not intend to become a drunk when they take that first drink. Well, everybody's drinking. It's not, it can't be that bad. Look, they, these are all my friends aren't drunks. Well, let's look at you 10 years later, five years later, 20 years later, and see where it took you. God, you know, I've just been sleeping around once in a while. It was fun. And all the sexually transmitted diseases and, and, and bad relationships that it causes. God, you know, it, it was not that big a deal. God says, if you only knew, I was telling the kids this morning, if you only knew where decisions will take you 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you'd be glad that we're trying to keep you from making those bad decisions. Well, people don't listen. We never hardly ever listen. Because we're right. I can get away with it. I am not going to be the one that's going to get addicted to this drug. I can, I can take this hit and feel good. And I'm not, I would never get addicted to this. I can take this drink. I would never become an alcoholic. I can do, name your sin. And I am just so strong that I would never get addicted to it or fall into the, deep into the sin. The testimony of everybody who's finally gotten out of it is, I wish that I had never done the first one. I wish that I had realized where this would lead. Take vengeance on your sin. execute it. Put it in, put it in irons and execute it. And execute upon them the judgments written with this honor have all of his saints. God tells us when things are wrong, we need to execute it, not play around with the sin. Too many times we play around with sin. God, you know, uh, not that bad. I, I can look at the girls with, in, and lust after them with no problems. I can, I, I'll, it'll never, I'll never be wanting any more than just looking. Looking's fine. And the next thing you know you're you're looking up a prostitute or, or hooking up for that one night stand because you were lusting. God, I can I can go to the I can go to the bar, I'll never be tempted to take that drink. I can just sit there, you know. Been around these people not often, but I've been around these people. You know, I went to a lot of managers and meetings where these guys were all drinking and all the comments were, why did not you take one drink? It's not going to hurt you to take one drink. You know, God's not going to send you to hell because you took one drink. You can, you can do that. You can, you can do, you know. They can't, right me. They can't. But we need to be so careful. The first step ends up oftentimes being a slippery slope. If you walk on a pebbly slope long enough, eventually you're gonna slide down that slope. No matter how careful you are, you're gonna slide down. And when the rocks, when those pebbles start moving, the bigger rocks start moving, and then bigger rocks start moving, and you end up getting hurt. Sin is that way. It's a very slippery slope, and if you start down that path, you may do good for a long time, but eventually that first pebble slips out from under you, and you go down the hill, into that sin getting hurt as bigger and bigger rocks of sin come pouring down on you. How many people have ended up in Skid Row and at one time they were CEOs of businesses because the drink that they could handle, social drinking that they could handle for so long got to them or some other sin, whatever it might be. How many people have ended up in prison for embezzling from the company and it all started when they did it one time because they had a great need. God, I've got this bill and I payday's Monday and I, uh, Friday and you know it's only Wednesday and I can get it replaced on Friday. And they replace it. I worked with employers for many years that started on that same place. and I don't know their history, but I'm sure it started. We just need a little bit of the money from the money that's going to taxes. And before long, they had taken so much money out of the taxes that they couldn't pay the taxes and they couldn't pay it back. And they're both in prison right now. And I know it started out innocent. Okay, I've got my car payment and you know, we're, running, you know, we're gonna have these big companies paying us at the end of the week, so we'll, and my paycheck will cover it. And I'll be able to put it back. We justify playing around with sin so often, and the sin just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the sin is controlling us. And we're not in control anymore. I, I remember walking my grandma's dog when I was 14 years old. I uh, 16, I guess, 15 at the time. And her dog was a great big husky. If that dog wanted to go someplace, you went where that dog wanted to go. Okay. My little brother and sister, eight and nine years old, wanted to walk that dog and go, uh-uh. <laughs> you could ride the dog maybe, but you're not walking this dog. Why? Because that dog would have went wherever he wanted. I mean, it was hard for me to hold him back. You know, it was like, no, we're not going that way. Dog, get back here. know, yeah, and I was 150 pounds, 160, and it was hard for me to put that dog in control. That little 60, 70-year-old, 60-pound uh, young child, that dog goes, I'm twice as big as you. We're going where I want to go. Uh, yeah, once in a while. she was pretty strong, she wasn't that old at that time. But you know, sin is like that. We're the eight or nine years old, I'm gonna walk this elephant wherever I wanna go. And maybe it'll be cooperative for a little while. All right, I'll follow you. There's gonna come a day when that elephant says, I'm not going around the block. I wanna go over here. And we're gonna go with that elephant. That is the way sin is with us. If we want to play with sin, sin might cooperate for a short period of time. But when it decides it's going to take control, it will take control. And we won't be able to stop it. And then he ends this psalm with praise you the Lord. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise you the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for caring for us. Lord, teach us to be obedient to you and not play with sin. Not be looking that somehow we can handle it Guide and lead us in all that we do. In your son's name, amen.